Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We're here every Saturday, 12 noon, to promote and to defend public education. And uh, we have a, a website at www.adogs.info. And we usually start our program with a press release, and this is press release 861. And we'll be talking about international matters for a little while today. The OECD report on the PISA test for 2018 is out. And it's very revealing and very interesting. So we thought you'd you'd like to know how Australia is travelling internationally. And the private-public matter is, in fact, putting Australia on the map. We stick out a mile for the large number of children that we have in so-called private schools. Uh, The uh, OECD calls them not independent, but dependent private schools, which is about right. But um, as well as that, we've got Oliver here, and he's going to tell you something about what's happening with the private schools that have a very interesting market business model here in the times of plague in Australia. They've got a few problems. As well as that, we're going to find out that the private school funding model that they're putting up for the Morrison government is inherently flawed. Trevor Cobald from the Save Our Schools group, he is an economist and was working at one stage for the Productivity Commission. He has uh, done some number crunching, which is very interesting. As well as that, we're going to talk about the VET system which is supposed to get us out of this uh, economic uh, hole that we're in by training our children for the future. And I'm afraid both the LIBS and the LABS have made a bit of a mess of it. So Dale will be talking about the VET system. As well as that, if you listened to us last week, you would have heard Dale getting pretty impassioned about the hypocrisy in this country of ours towards crime, criminal matters. If sure grammar boys break the law, that is one thing. But Dale is going to tell us what she thinks about all this when you consider what is happening with our Indigenous children. So we've got quite a lot on our plate this afternoon. Without any more ado, I'll tell you what's in our press release. The OECD report exposes Australian educational inequity. That's the heading. Now, this latest OECD report on worldwide education indicators has confirmed that public investment into Australia's public education system is below the OECD average. The Australian Education Union has analysed results of the latest report for 2018, and this is what they've discovered. And uh, if you want to check with these facts and figures, you can go to the OECD report uh, itself. If you go to our, our website, you will see uh, there is a link at the end of this press release. Now, according to the Volume 5 Education at a Glance report, Australian public investment in education is well below the OECD average. Australia's 19th out of 37 countries, and it's well below the OECD funding average per student. At the same time, Australia has the third highest level of private expenditure on education. It's more than 2.6 times the OECD average. So a lot of parents in Australia are being asked to put a lot of money into our education system to keep working. And in fact, a lot of teachers, we find out, are putting a lot of their money into basic resources in public schools for the children, particularly in this time of play. Now, according to the report, here's a few facts and figures. We spend significantly less per student than the US, UK, Canada and the 23 EU countries. We have the third lowest level of public investment as a percentage of total education expenditure and we're behind only Colombia and Turkey. 
We have the high, third highest level of private expenditure, which we've just talked about, and we're the fourth last in the OECD when it comes to vocational education spending per student. We're above only the Russian Federation, Mexico, Lithuania and Turkey. I don't think that's very impressive, do you? Given that over 100 years ago we were leading the world in a lot of areas. Uh, Australia spends on average 36% less per student in vocational education than the OECD average. We have by far the highest return per public dollar invested in upper secondary education. Uh, so our teachers are doing actually a very good job with less money. And completing upper secondary study in Australia can mean an additional 252000 in post-tax lifetime income for men and an additional 173900 for women. So children who leave school at year 10 have got a few problems when it comes to lifetime earnings. Now, this report provided further evidence of the inequity in educational building and funding in Australia. And this inequity also has a very deep impact on preschools, schools and TAFE. The preschool area is an area, I'm afraid, where Australia doesn't do very well at all. And yet we all know that the children of poor backgrounds, it is so important that before they even enter a, a, a public school or a private school, classroom for that matter, they should have a certain level of knowledge. Certainly um, speech. If they come from a family which does not speak English at home, then they have a long way to, to catch up. They do. They do very well. Uh, uh, immigrant children, but it's so much easier for them if they have a preschool ground. Now, this OECD report confirms that Australia continues to fall behind its OECD peers when it comes to investment in public education. And an even more interesting section of the OECD report, which I found when I was doing my separate research to the AU, is in Chapter 7. Chapter 7 deals with private schools and school choice, and it explores the relationship between the school type, broadly public or private on the one hand, and the student performance and the equity in the education system on the other. And it also examines whether giving parents a greater choice of schools for their child is related to the quality of the education system as a whole. And the researchers for the OECD found out this. In most countries and economies that participated in pizza testing in 2018, the large majority of 15-year-old students attended public schools. In fact, on average, 82% of students attended a public school in all the OECD countries. In Australia, that figure is only 66.5%, I think it is, or less, 66.2%. In 56 out of 68 education systems, at least 80% of students attended public schools, including 24 education systems, in which at least 95% of students attended public schools. Now, this is a very interesting fact for you. Over in America until very recently, and certainly with the latest kerfuffle about the Supreme Court appointment, they have pretty well had separation of church and state. Uh, and in the United States, although we've heard a lot, we tell you a lot about the charter school movement and the attempts to privatise public education, this is one of the countries where the debate on school choice is particularly vigorous at this present moment, but 93% of students attend public schools in the United States of America. I'll repeat that. It's a very interesting figure when you compare it to Australia. In America, 93% of students, according to the OECD, attend public schools, where in Australia it is only 60, almost 66%, about two-thirds of our children. 
Now, on the average across the OECD countries also, 5% of students were enrolled in what they call private independent schools. That's that's private schools receiving at least half of their funding from private sources. And 13% of students were enrolled in private dependent schools, that is private schools receiving half or more of their funding from the government. So in 2018, 18% of students on average across OECD countries attended private school. And here in Australia, we have about double that figure in private schools. But I think that their actual um, way of classifying these so-called private schools is very interesting. They call them private independent if they have uh, more than 50% privately funded and private dependent if they're more than 50% privately funded. But I think that's the way we should uh, look at it in Australia too. Let's call them private dependent schools because almost all our private schools in Australia receive more than 50% of their funding from the government and some of them, some of them actually receive more than 100%. Uh, they are overfunded by our very generous uh, Morrison government. But we'll hear more about that from Oliver later. So um, I could go on with all these facts and figures. I'm not sure whether you're so terribly interested in them. Uh, and you can read more about them on our website at www.adogs.info. And some of them, I assure you, are very interesting indeed. But it means that in Australia, we are an outlier, particularly with the large number of children which we are now uh, educating in sectarian private schools, because most of them, well, over 80% of them are religious schools, and they are religious schools with a tremendous variety. Uh, they are no longer just... Uh, schools from the Roman Catholic denomination, the Anglican denomination. They now include Mandamaga, Society Friends, Philadelphians, you name it, they're there. Now, dogs note that as the federal government attempts to stabilise Australia and its economy after the plague lockdown, they should look no further than the public education sector. The privatised education sector and its profiteering business plans have failed. They failed in the 19th century. That's why we had our state systems in the first place. And they've failed again miserably. They have failed both our children and our young adults, particularly with the VET system. Our public school teachers have done a mammoth job. They should be rewarded and provided with proper wages, proper resources, so that they themselves don't have to pay for basic things for the education of their children and also proper buildings. So that is our press release uh, for this week, dear listeners. We'll have a bit of break and we'll come back. And Oliver has got something very interesting to read about Victorian private schools and their business plans. As we've been saying for the last few weeks, they've got a few problems. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855M on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Ah, well, here we are back with the Dogs Program. We're going to talk about the private schools in Australia that need to change their business models. We're going to call them private dependent schools because we all have an interest in these business, business models because actually we're paying for a lot of these schools. They call themselves private, but we taxpayers are paying for them. And they are, well, I'd like to say they're a blot on the horizon, but uh, they have, they themselves actually have problems. There's a very, very interesting article in the conversation. It's entitled, Some Private Schools Need to Change Their Models. They Were Losing Students Even Before COVID. And it's written by a lecturer in educational leadership at the University of Wollongong called Paul Kitson. And we have referred in previous weeks to the fact that these boarding schools in particular, private boarding schools, but other schools as well, who are in trouble because of the international student situation, have been lobbying the government to allow international students back in 
uh, as quickly as possible and also lobbying the government, obviously, for more money. But their business plans were in trouble before COVID, according to Paul Kidson, and we've been saying this for some time too, particularly the ones with large boarding communities, including the King's School in Sydney and St Joseph's College in Sydney, which is the big Waverley College. And these schools have actually accessed job keeper payments as their income met the 30% downturn threshold, while their total income is fewer than one billion. How do you like that? These schools enrolled large numbers of regional and rural students as well as international students. But the last few years have seen a steady increase in what are called weekly boarders who come from families for whom juggling work and study is facilitated by boarding. So there are all of these students who go to school and stay there for the week and then only go home on weekends because their parents are too busy to rear them. They're too busy working to pay the fees to the boarding school. So here you have families that are in a um, uh, really in a, in a vicious circle and it's very sad indeed, particularly for the children. But the loss of the international student enrollments for most schools is unlikely to cause many of these schools to reach the 30% downturn threshold. So um, it's not new, as the history of the global financial crisis uh, shows. Uh, the international student enrolments in Australian schools have actually been falling uh, for, for the last 10 years. So uh, these schools now are crying help, help, help to the government for their business plan. The, um, the numbers have been there for some time. They flatlined over the, the enrolments flatlined over the period 2016 to 2019, even as the higher education and vocational education sectors increased by more than 30% across the same period. And as we've just been telling you about what's been happening overseas in the OECD, you can see that in a lot of the countries that these um, children come from, particularly uh, places like Singapore and places um, like China, places like Vietnam even, uh, their, their governments are doing a very good job in providing good, uh, not-so-costly public education for these children at the primary and secondary level. So why would they come to Australia and pay big dollars for uh, private dependent schools that are not really offering very much more? But um, Oliver's got a little bit more to say about this business plan. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you very much, Jane. Parental choice, often the preferred ground of legitimacy for non-government schools, may also require some principals to rethink the sustainability of their models. International enrolments are not subsidised by the Australian government, and their fees can be very high compared to domestic students. For example, Wesley College in Melbourne charges 42850 for international students in years 9 to 12, not including the additional 27000 for boarding while domestic students in year 10 to 12 are charged 34610 A reduction of this income can have a significant and material impact on school operations. When parents cannot afford the fees, they will shift their child's enrolment to a school with more sustainable fee levels. When school enrolment deteriorate, there is significant human cost to teachers, administration and support staff. That loss, while painful for those directly impacted, could be a gain for other schools in both government and non-government sectors. As enrolments drift elsewhere, so too does the need to increase staffing in those schools to accommodate additional enrolments. The data above suggests solutions will need to emerge from within schools themselves as they did post-GFC rather than from government. The non-government school sector has long benefited from the marketization of education in Australia. The challenge now is how some schools will reconfigure their operations in light of these changing circumstances. If they do not, or cannot, the future looks quite dire. In response to COVID-related financial pressures, some private schools have reportedly offered fee cuts and deferrals and asked alumni to help pay the fees of students at risk of quitting due to economic pressures in the family. The rapid growth of UK independent school partnerships in China is also providing an increasing range of options for parents seeking international education experience. Some private schools will likely need to adjust their staffing levels as their enrolments change. If they can do so successfully, their future may be more secure. If not, if not quite, the future those school communities and principals may have envisaged. Such is the logic of a market-driven policy.
Back to you, Jane. Yes, well, there you are. This is the market. This is the market, and it's letting them down rather, isn't it? And as I said before, those figures were very interesting. If you wanted to send your child to Wesley College and uh, you lived in China or uh, Vietnam or um, Singapore, you'd be up for over 60,000, well, over 60,000 if they were going to board at the place. Uh, <laughs> I think only uh, the very, very upper 1% in those societies would be uh, considering that. And there is the question, of course, as to whether it would be value for money and whether or not they'd be better at home. But that's enough on that issue for the moment. We'll have a bit of a break and we'll be back with some more news and views on our public education program here at 3CR. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, uh, there we've been talking about the OECD and we've been talking about the uh, failed business plans of, uh, let's call them, private dependent schools in Australia. Let's uh, have a look at what the Australian Education Union's been up to. They've had a lot of information on their website. It's well worth going to uh, this week. And uh, they had a very interesting article entitled The Bet System Needs Informed Reform, Not More Spin. And Dale's going to tell us about this uh, issue. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got uh, an article here by Corinna Haythorpe. And, yeah, as Jean said, it's titled, The Vet System Needs Informed Reform, Not More Spin. Listening to teachers would be a great first step for the Prime Minister in his rush to restructure the VET system and revive the economy. While no one could disagree with his analysis in his speech to the National Press Club in May that the vocational education and training sector is marred by inconsistencies and incoherence, we could shed some light on the real reasons why and prevent the policy mistakes of the past being repeated. It's time for change. The VET system does need changing. It has been marred by years of poor policy decisions by successive governments who have consistently tied funding to their neoliberal ideology. For the past 40 years, TAFE has been starved of billions of dollars in funding and forced to compete for government resources in an increasingly competitive and fractured market where the odds of survival were stacked against it. Time and again, private providers have been allowed to line their own pockets at the expense of both TAFE and the taxpayer. Australia is still paying the price for the VET fee help student loan scheme debacle, where private providers were given subsidies up front from the federal government for enrolling students in courses of questionable quality, regardless of whether or not the course was completed or even ran at all. Rorting of the scheme was widespread. Reports of ghost colleges are still being investigated today as private providers enrolled students for courses that didn't exist. Students were left with thousands of dollars in loan repayments and often no education to show for it. In just three years, the VET fee-help scheme blew out from millions to billions of taxpayer money. The federal government are now mopping up these debts, courtesy of the taxpayer, through a redress scheme. According to the latest figures from the VET Ombudsman, $462 million of bad debts have been wiped from 36,000 students since the redress scheme started. And with over 7,000 active complaints yet to be investigated, that figure is set to rise. Little wonder this scheme is now considered one of the biggest policy scandals in Australia's history. Lipstick on a pig. The system does need the promised overhaul, but instead the Prime Minister has stayed true to his marketing roots and rebadged the same tired neoliberal solutions to give them a new sheen. It's clear the government doesn't want to invest in quality education, but rather to just run the system like a business. This lack of vision and refusal to learn from the mistakes of the past can be seen in the Prime Minister's new marketing slogan, industry to define the qualifications, essentially keeping the market in charge of education. In his own words again, it's all about the money. 
industry is already defining qualifications. The Australian Industry Skills Committee is made up of Australian industry leaders who are responsible for national training package product development for the VET sector. And there has been no shortage of reviews over the last 10 years into VET, fully informed by businesses. As TAFE Directors Australia CEO Craig Robertson says, course direction is largely out of the hands of TAFE, with industry pulling the levers. Industry has really been driving the curriculum for VET for the last 10 to 15 years, and this is the point that we've got to, he said. Yet despite industry involvement, this government has overseen a critical shortage of apprentices during its time in office. Allowing the industry to define qualifications is diminishing the role of TAFE teachers, taking the power and autonomy of curriculum design away and leaving many experienced teachers to feel more like trainers than teachers. Vocational education has been reduced to narrow unit of competency-based skills training set by industry, rather than educating the students with the critical skills they will need for an uncertain future of work. The Prime Minister's comments that funding will be based on what business needs sounds the death knell on the broad range of creative vocational courses offered by TAFEs and signals an increased shift towards tying vocational education funding with employability targets, putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop. The Prime Minister made no mention of providing any additional Commonwealth funding for his reforms, which can only mean that he's attempting to subjugate TAFE to the demands of big business and private training providers. The marketisation of vocational education and the boom in private providers has been a disaster for skills-based education in this country. The recent scandals have proved that private providers cannot be trusted and they are largely unsuitable for this vital task. The pandemic has created a pivotal point in history. We have the opportunity to learn from the past and realise that the public money that has flowed to private providers has not improved education or led to better employment outcomes. As Australia looks for ways to revive the economy, we should look for new bold ideas, not rely on ideology that we know doesn't work. It took just a few weeks for our capitalist systems to break down as the pandemic took hold and the federal government was forced to use public money to bail out businesses. We need to realise as a nation that the best use of public money is for outcomes that have public benefit. Investing in robust and trusted public institutions is the best method to deliver this. Agile TAFE. If the Prime Minister had taken the time to speak to leaders, he would have discovered how agile TAFE had been, has been recently in adapting teaching and learning to community needs. TAFE New South Wales is offering bushfire relief short courses to provide the skills needed to rebuild communities devastated by bushfires in recent months. TAFEs are well placed in regional communities to provide this training, as opposed to private providers motivated by profit that tend to be situated in the more populous urban areas. During COVID-19, TAFE teachers worked around the clock to adapt practical courses to remote learning and coming up with innovative solutions. Meanwhile, many private providers closed down and relied on government subsidies. Reward success. The preferential treatment for private providers over the past decades has seen their share of the government funding soar and has undermined TAFE as the leading vocational education institution in Australia. This favouritism is so overt that the Prime Minister has made no direct reference to TAFE throughout his entire a clear indication that TAFE is not part of the reform agenda. As Professor Michelle Simons of Western Sydney University commented the day after the Prime Minister's address, firstly, the road to recovery needs to build on the very best that the current vocational education and training system has to offer. We need to promote a strong student-centred approach that recognises the, the diversity of people who turn to the VET sector for their skill development. Australia's world-leading TAFE has proved itself to be the best and its highly qualified workforce can offer tailored education to a diverse range of student needs, backed up by comprehensive support systems. TAFE should be rewarded for its success by being the government's preferred solution for providing the vocational education to assist the escalating numbers of Australians who are now out of work. Vision for reform. Investment into TAFE 
is the best road out of this crisis. But TAFEs need to be given control, not to have the purse strings tied to employment prospects. TAFEs should not be expected to run like businesses. They are a public good and we should treasure them as such. TAFEs should not be thought of as job factories. That only serves to diminish opportunities for people to follow their vocation and choose the education path that they want to follow. Life is not about serving the economy. There is a diverse range of courses that people should be able to pursue to broaden their perspectives or just to socialise and integrate in the community. Teachers need autonomy to teach, not to be treated like trainers of content agreed by industry, but back in charge of the curriculum. Just like the universities are able to design their own courses and work with industry to get them industry certified, they should be treated as equal partners with industry. Capable people. The future is becoming increasingly uncertain, but we can be sure that a VET system that continues to be based on competency-based training will only create students that are competent in handling a defined set of tasks. A VET system that is publicly funded as a public good and puts the emphasis back on education will create capable students that are better able to handle whatever life throws at them in this uncertain future. Any TAFE teacher could tell the Prime Minister that. And that was from Karenna Haythorpe, the AEU Federal President. Thank you so much, Dale. That's a tremendous article. Um, it's a long one. But she didn't actually mention that the Morrison government and, and the Labor Party government before them are sitting on a $19 billion scandal with their marketing ideology. The private sector, people who have been in, in the TAFE sector, offering these shadow students, shadow courses, has been a national scandal for a long time. And, and this has happened on their watch at the same time as the well-reputed uh, TAFE public system has been starved of funds. At least I think Mr, Mr Andrews is starting to get the message that um, if we're going to have a manufacturing sector at all, then we have to go back to look at what we did with TAFE in days gone by. In days of crisis, it's the TAFE sector that you fall back on. They certainly fell back on it in the Second World War. But um, they had to produce a large number of mechanics very quickly then. So we're in that kind of situation now. But unfortunately, they don't seem to ever learn, do they? Well, Karina Haythorpe from the AEU is trying to give Mr Morrison a lesson. But uh, we'll have a break now and um, we'll come back with some more interesting material on the private school funding model, which is inherently flawed. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, we've had what uh, Dad usually calls, calls a pretty meaty afternoon here on the Dogs Program. We've been throwing a lot of information at you about what's happening in the education area, both here in Australia, in Victoria, and overseas as well. But we're now going to some work that's been done by Trevor Coble from Save Our Schools, who we often refer to here on the Dogs Program. And he has got out a news release which says the private school funding model, the model that they've now come up with concerning parental income, I don't quite know how they're going to, how this really works because you can be sure that the rich get richer and the poor have got a fair idea what's going on in this country. But I'll now send you over to Oliver who's going to read this media release, private school funding model is inherently flawed. Thank you very much, Jen. An education policy brief published by Save Our Schools shows that the new funding method for private schools introduced this year by the Morrison government is inherently flawed and will result in massive overfunding of schools. National convener of Save Our Schools, Trevor Kobold, 
said the model is littered with flaws and should be replaced by a new approach. One glaring flaw is that the model assumes that parents of children pay the school fees, yet there is widespread evidence that many grandparents pay at least part of the fees. Surveys show that almost one-third of grandparents draw down on their superannuation to pay school fees for grandchildren, and about 60% of private school students have their fees at least partly paid by their grandparents. Income received from grandparents is not included in the assessment of parental capacity to pay. Mr. Kobold said several other flaws in the model also result in the capacity to pay for families to be severely underestimated. It underestimates the income of families because it excludes the non-tax component of capital gains as only 50% of the gain is taxable. Many high-income families with children in private schools are likely to be recipients of this non-taxed income because 80% of the tax concession goes to the top 20% of income earners. The model ignores non-disclosed income in Australia or held in overseas bank accounts and tax havens. The use of overseas bank accounts and tax havens to hide income is widespread among high-income earners. It also ignores the wealth of families, which is which is a significant factor in capacity to pay. Assets such as shares, securities, and other investments are just as much part of capacity to contribute as direct income. Mr. Kobold said that the new funding method also ignores the income that many schools receive from private donors and foundations. Private donations are a significant source of income for private schools, especially high-fee schools who receive millions in donations including donations from overseas foundations. The asset of schools which run into billions uh, for elite private schools are also ignored. All these flaws mean private schools will receive much more government funding than warranted. The Morrison government model will provide an additional $3.5 billion to private schools over the next 10 years compared to the previous method of funding. Mr. Kobold said that there are insuperable problems associated with assessing the capacity to pay of families, which mean it should be abandoned in determining government funding of private schools. The concept of capacity to pay is a dead end. All measures of it are inherently flawed because many sources of family and school income are ignored, as well as family and school wealth. The basic principle behind government funding of private schools should be that no school operates with less total resources than a community standard necessary to provide an adequate education for all students. Governments have the responsibility to ensure that children should not be deprived of an adequate education because their parents enroll them in under-resourced schools. Government funding for private schools should only fill the gap between the community standard and income from fees and other sources of income. Schools with private income above the community standard are not entitled to baseline government funding because it would extend their resource advantage over public schools. The alternative funding model proposed by Save Our Schools has three main features. A baseline component that varies between schools to take account of income obtained from private sources such as fees and donations. A discount factor applied to the baseline funding, which varies according to the extent to which private schools meet the same social obligations of public schools. And funding loadings for disadvantaged students and locations. Mr. Kobold said that this alternative model would provide a genuine needs-based funding model that eliminates the vast overfunding of private schools under the current approach. Thank you very much. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you, Oliver. Very interesting. Mr. Kobold is, um, is always on the ball, of course. He's a facts and figures man like Ryan Nielsen used to be. But we'll have a little bit of a break and then we've got Dale because she's got something to say about something she feels very passionate about. We are all passionate here about our public schools. But what happened last week with the Shaw Grammar School muck-up day has really got under our skins because in this country there's a lot of talk about disadvantage but nobody talks about the upper 1% and the privileged, the entitled, and in fact what they get away with. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. 
Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's just not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, we're getting close to our program, but I'll just immediately hold you over to Dale because she's raring to go. Thanks, Dean. The following includes comments made online in response to the Shaw scandal and a responding article punctuated with notes from me. But first, some comments. Goods from the Golden West says, This is the attitude of the privileged who will be put in positions of power and influence. Shaw School needs to introduce compulsory community service for all years, volunteering in soup kitchens, collecting rubbish from parks and beaches, painting fences, labour in community gardens, reading to foster kids, just one afternoon a week and the world slowly changes. Now, I have a note on this. Exposure to all echelons of society from a young age addresses this before it becomes an issue. State schools not only create valuable relationships that cross class, religious, ethnic, ability and gender divides, but also prepare young minds for the realities of the world outside their familial bubbles. They provide a window into the responsibilities borne by the individual when recognising oneself as a member of a larger community. Private schools, by design and intention, exclude the majority of the rest of society, positioning themselves as elite, morally superior and unbeholden to the community at large. Just try getting the Catholic Church to equip even a percentage of the billions of taxpayer education funding they receive every year and you'll see very quickly the contempt with which those outside the circle are held. Back to the comments. Mel Zem Michelle says, if I was a parent of a student at that school, I'd be asking for my money back. Aurora says, why not do something admirable and honest? Make something good for disadvantaged people. What are they taught in that school at all? Is this what their parents are paying for? Now, here's my note. This sentiment's been expressed over and over again. However, please remember that whenever anyone mentions the $33,000 that parents spend per child per year sending them to this school, that this is just the parents' contribution. You, the taxpayer also pay for this school. You are financing this culture. Back to the comments. Bakuda says, future politicians, business owners, judges. Maisie 8 says, just shows money can't buy dignity, integrity, good character and morals. Damon Eyes says, and these creeps are our future leaders. Chris says, they may get good test scores, but they're very lacking in character, judgment and decency. Sydney Sydney says, what is equally as shocking about this is the denial of the school parents. They've been quoted as saying they suspect boys from another school made it up to make their children look bad and also that other schools were doing the same. Surely even if other schools were doing it, you wouldn't be okay with your own child holding the type of views that leads them to believe it's okay to do this. I suspect this is exactly the reason why these sure boys have turned out the way they are. Now my note on this, the mere suggestion that it wasn't even the Shaw boys who created the scavenger hunt bespeaks the rarefied atmosphere in which these boys live and ideas thrive. Parents are not even willing to consider that their own precious bands could ever be so vile, making allowances that only the privileged can ever expect to enjoy. And further setting up the toxic othering, the setting up of binary oppositions of us and them that continue to have a detrimental effect on our community. Now, more comments. Lion King 37 says, the joke is on the family paying that much money down the drains for kids who don't appreciate it. Now, my note on this is, it would be a joke on the families paying if it were not for the fact that you, you listening right now, your taxes are paying billions every year as well, not just the parents and you should feel well ripped off. Now, there have been many apologists for this behaviour. Mid-North Coaster says, 
certainly not reflective of an excellent school. I'd imagine most parents and schoolboys would be appalled at this. Sort it out, council offenders, and let's move on. It damages far more innocence than anything else. Now, my response to this. I take issue with several of the points this commenter makes. One, many have tried to argue that this is the work of a few individuals, not a majority. However, the boys were told to play in groups of five and six. Even if there are only, say, for example, five groups taking part, that's still at least 25 students complicit with this toxic culture, which is a considerable percentage of the cohort of graduates. Point two, he says, sort it out, counsel the offenders and move on. There will be no suitable responses to this issue from the school, as they all scramble to point the finger of blame at anyone but themselves. As the scavenger hunt didn't go ahead, there will be no repercussions whatsoever, so counselling won't even happen. And move on. Yes, of course, move on. Nothing to see here. Just ignore this culture of othering we've got going. Keep giving us your taxpayer dollars and shut up. Move along. Nothing to see here. Number three, this damages far more innocence than anything else. Well, I would argue that the innocence damaged are the rest of society, which has to be constantly vigilant against entitled sociopaths. No one is saying that all shore boys would have taken part. But what the school as a whole is responsible for is the perpetuation of this toxic entitlement that dehumanises greater society and its members, be they women, the gender diverse, those from other religions and cultures, those of differing abilities, social standing, politics, attitudes, and those with fewer options who did not win the sperm lottery and be born into a stratum where bad behaviour is excused with boys will be boys and not all men and wasn't our kids, must have been bad kids from bad schools trying to make our kids look bad. A stratum where the police response is we don't want to spoil the fun, where boys can actually dare each other to get arrested and have a photo taken in handcuffs and not expect serious repercussions. Imagine just for a moment if an Indigenous child tried pulling a stunt like this. If this occurred anywhere else at a public school, there would be children in detention before you could say, but it was only a muck-up day prank. The Sydney Morning Herald says, teenagers' brains aren't developed. Remember this when judging them. Sure, boys are a work in progress. Now, this is undeniably true. However, it is also undeniably a position of white privilege when one considers how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children continue to be held in detention. We can make allowances for rich white boys who plan sexual and physical assaults, but not for the 10-year-old Aboriginal kid in jail for pinching a chocolate bar. An ugly double standard that highlights the racism that pervades Australian society. An article by Georgina Noak explores this further. Some of the language has been modified for broadcasts. It begins, so sure grads are a work in progress, but Indigenous 10-year-olds are in jail. Sounds about white. When the Shaw School of North Sydney made headlines last week after the details of Muck Up Day Scavenger Hunt were leaked, everyone was, for the most part, absolutely appalled. Appalled, but not entirely surprised. The excuses came thick and fast. Oh, it's just Year 12 antics. They're rebelling against the rigid, exclusive system and hashtag proud Shaw mums rose up to defend their darling children, some of whom, by the way, are legal adults. Now, we're being told that we should go easy on these students because their teen brains are a work in progress. But if that's the case, what about the brains of the 10-year-old children being thrown in jail for as little as stealing a chocolate bar? What about all those predominantly Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children locked behind bars for their indiscretions? If private schools really are producing the intellectual, well-rounded individuals they claim to be, surely those students' brains, again, some of whom are participating as legal adults, are far more developed than those of a 10-year-old child. The thing is, yes, the list is horrible, but that's not the issue. It's this system that produced it that's the issue. Note goes on to describe her muck-up day games as including swapping clothes, taking photos with teachers and dive-bombing in swimming pools. She said, compared to the shore list, which included assaults, trespassing, drug taking and other illegal activities, ours was incredibly tame. We did not include those options because if we were caught, we knew we would never get away with it. If we leave criticism of the boys out of it, instead let's look at the insidious type of boys club culture of privilege and entitlement that is these same-sex private schools. 
It's the same culture that led to the St. Kevin's sexist tram rant. It's the same sexist culture that led to the brutal, violent hazing rituals within university colleges. The list is a reflection of a culture that has trained boys to exist in a world that does not reflect reality. It never has and never will. These institutions don't reflect reality, so how can we expect their grads to be well-adjusted and function properly within it? How is anyone meant to be considerate or respectful of the other half, whether it's non-men, the not-rich or the not-white, when they have never encountered it? These boys' confidence to break the law and humiliate or hurt others without fear of punishment signals the insidious way these institutions' moral compasses have been disorientated. This tri-wizard shornment really says, screw the rules, we have our own anyway. If teen brains are a work in progress, then stop letting white boys off and throwing black kids in jail. Say it's true, teen brains are a work in progress. What are we teaching these boys? They've already been taught to have the confidence to believe that the world is their oyster. They already believe and know that they can do what they want, to whom they want, when they want. But we're also teaching them that they can get away with it, because they always have. Every time we make an excuse and forgive these privileged teens, the cycle continues. And every mistake they make, when we forgive them, as we always have, the belief is ingrained deeper. There are no repercussions and zero accountability. What a privilege that must be. As the Sydney Morning Herald excuses the boys as a work in progress, Twitter user Selma Bouvier makes the point that this is the same country where a journalist led a public hate campaign against a nine-year-old, where police have a history of arresting and assaulting kids, where the media spent years creating a false teen gang narrative. Are black kids not eligible for the same empathy that rich white boys are? Note goes on to say that, meanwhile, we teach underprivileged and disadvantaged kids, especially Indigenous kids, that even their smallest mistakes are disastrous. We are teaching them that the world does not belong to them, that they are not tolerated for being anything less than perfect. We give them no room for improvement, to learn or to get better. Step one foot out of line and you're done for. Frankly, note continues, I refuse to excuse graduates from one of Sydney's top private schools as being not developed enough to make sound decisions. Not when they orchestrated an elaborate plan to commit misogynist, classist and violent crimes against the public for fun. And especially not when 600 children between the ages of 10 and 13 are in detention. When our police continue leaving Indigenous people to die in jail. When the media continues to create narratives that incite racial hatred and sometimes violence. If these 17 and 18 year olds' brains aren't developed, it either means that Shaw isn't as good at character formation and making responsible citizens of integrity who seek to serve the wider community as it claims, or it means the excuses are elitist, classist, and yeah, racist. Oh, and also absolute garbage. That was an excerpt from Georgina Noakes' article, so sure boys are a work in progress, but Indigenous 10-year-olds are in jail. Sounds about white. Now, back to addressing one more point. Another apologist article doing the rounds says the boys are rebelling against a rigid system that is using them as advertisements for their business, i.e. the business of private schools, and that the boys resent being used as walking advertisements in their boater hats and striped ties. So they're trying to tarnish the school's reputation. Now, this assumes a level of critical thinking that was woefully lacking in the planned scavenger hunt. To suggest that this was some earnest political response to being used as advertising fodder, again, excuses behaviour that is at best antisocial and at worst sociopathic. The school culture is just an extension and reflection of the community in which it exists, rich and entitled. The school perpetuates the culture of privilege and entitlement that already exists among the parents of the students. That scavenger hunt list contains activities that would be offensive to the more gentle nature of our community. Yet the underlying attitude of moral superiority is endemic. It's time that we demanded that our tax dollars not be spent on this continuing fight. This is what happens when children are separated on the basis of class, ethnicity, gender, ability, religion and culture. We tut-tut morally at the racial segregation of the mid-20th century, yet we are condemned to suffer the same social discord by this continued class segregation. 
The mock-up day debacle does not exist in a vacuum. The students themselves have continued to post social media content that vilifies the poor, boasts of the advantages they have, such as harbour views from the library and the 50 mil gym they enjoy. It seems that no real lessons will be learned by either the boys, their school communities, or a government that continues to be complicit with this toxicity by funding it with our money. Any lesson learned is learned by us, the rest of the community, and it is an old, painful and shameful lesson. And that lesson is that in this supposedly equal society, some will always remain more equal than others. Smash the patriarchy. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, so much, Dale. And this, of course, is why the dogs have consistently, since the 1960s, been anti-state aid. We do not think that these kind of institutions should receive taxpayers' dollars. We aren't anti-liberty. We don't say that they should not exist. If people want to pay for their children to go to these kind of places, then and they've got the money, that's, if they want to spend their money that way, that's their problem, not ours. But it shouldn't be made our problem. The government of this country and the taxpayers should not have to subsidise this kind of culture. Thank you so much, Dale. And I think it's now time for us all to say bye for now. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.